All right, I'm going to say a couple things that aren't on my notes. Um, I chose not to do this at the first service because I'm a Dutchman, so I cry on the inside by nature. Uh, you know, I'm just, I've got this certain disconnect that I've inherited with my emotions. And then they just show up and surprise me, like now. And, um, you know, I just recognized, you know, we talk every week about the value of gathering, building this into the rhythm of your life. And I just, today, it just sort of spoke to me in worship that, you know, I get paid to be here. I do this all the time. Clearly, I'm all in on, you know, being at church on Sunday. But, but I needed to be here today. And I think some of you need to be here today. Um, and the passage of Scripture that came to my mind, particularly in that last song, you know, there's no one else for me, none but Jesus. There's no one else for me, none but Jesus. Is that passage of Scripture, that story where Jesus starts to lay down some really hard stuff on all of these people who were following him, a lot of which who at that point left. And he turns to his disciples and he says, so what are you guys going to do? Are you going to stay? Or are you going to go? And what does Peter say? To whom shall we go, Lord, for you alone have the words of life? It's good to be here today. Thanks for coming. It's been a tough couple days around here. If you were here with us last week, um, then you know that we talked about our goal for 2012. And we said our goal for 2012 is basically the same as our goal for 2011, but with a particular twist, with a particular focus, with a particular kind of stated point of emphasis, if you will. We said that we want to know the Word and live the Word again in 2012, meaning the Bible, the written Word of God that God and grace has recorded and given to us as His great gift. But we want to focus our time in the written Word of God on the study of the life of the teachings, of the sufferings, of the death, of the burial, of the resurrection, and of the glory of the one in whom alone is life. And that's Jesus. And here's why we want to do that. We want to do that so that we can know Him better. And we want to do that also so that our lives might begin to look more and more and more like His and a whole lot less like who we are by nature. So that's our goal for 2012. And if you were here with us last week, then you know that I also said, look, we're not going to accomplish that goal unless or until we first learn how to read the Bible properly. And I know that I blew up a whole lot of New Year's resolutions last week. I could almost hear them popping in the room when I said, you know what? The Bible is not a book that is made to be read quickly. And that blows up New Year's resolutions because many of you for the 18th year in a row now have said, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. And if you're going to read through the whole Bible this year, you're going to read it in a way that it is not made to be read. If that's your devotional life, you're going to miss 90% of it. Because here's the deal. If you're going to read through it in a year, you've got to do five to seven chapters a day. And let's all just be honest, okay? You're going to get to March. You're going to be bogged down in Leviticus. It's going to get easy to miss some days. Life is going to come and steal a day here and steal a day here and steal a day here and steal a day here. And by the time you get to April, you're going to be on the phone with your trigonometry professor from college trying to calculate how many chapters a day now that you need to read to catch up so that you can then continue to read it at a pace that's already way too quick. Listen to what David says. Psalm 1, verse 1, he says, how blessed is the man? Now, hang on a minute. I mean, we're going to read it slow, right? 
Who doesn't want that said of them? How blessed is the woman? How blessed is the man? If we had a sign-up sheet in the back for how blessed is the man or woman, all of us would sign up. We wouldn't know exactly what we're signing up for, but it sure sounds good, and it is. How blessed is the man? What? How blessed is the man who does not walk? Reading slowly, we pause. We look at walk, and we go, hey, you know what? Walk is a metaphor, isn't it? Now, what is it a metaphor for? The way that we live. One moment at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time, one step at a time. How blessed is the man who does not live where? In the counsel of the wicked, nor sit in the path of sinners, nor, I mean, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But why does he not do that? Because he knows the word and he lives it. And therefore, he lives differently. Differently. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. David is saying, blessed is the man or the woman who knows the word and who lives the word. But how does that blessed person read and study the word? Because that's what he says next. He says, and in his law, this blessed man races through day and night. It's not what it says. In his law, this blessed man meditates day and night. And that little word meditate is so tame to us, isn't it? It's way too tame. This word does not mean what we think it means, which basically means to sit quietly somewhere and peacefully think about something. That's not what it talks about. Isaiah uses this exact same word to describe a lion who is crouching over his prey, growling. There's your word. It's aggressive. The lion has hunted his prey carefully. The lion has pounced upon his prey with great energy and effort and explosiveness. The lion has taken down his prey, dominated it, mastered it, killed it, and begins to eat it. Bite by bite. Bit by bit. I mean, maybe some of you don't watch, you know, some of these television shows, Planet Earth or whatever it is on TV, but you ever watch a lion? I mean, he'll like gnaw that dude down to the marrow of the bone. There you go. There's your image. That's why last week when I talked about how to read the Bible, I I used the metaphor of food. I said, look, the Bible is not McDonald's. It's Ruth's Chris. It's not Burger King. It's Morton's. It's not Wendy's and Taco Bell and Arby's, it's Cafe Vico. And I know some of you are going, hey, write that down, Cafe Vico, you know. (laughs) Have you been there? It's phenomenal. It's really good. But it's not fast food, it's fine dining. It's not something that you pay very little for. Drive through and sort of pick up in the midst of the, you know, rabid hurriness of your life. Gulp down in like six or eight bites. Barely tasting, barely chewing, certainly not savoring, and hardly digesting, as it turns out. (laughs) That which you take in. The Bible invites you to a table. It asks you to pay a high price. It is the price of your effort. It is the price of your energy. It is the price of submitting to it. It is the price of your obedience, for that's the goal. It's a costly meal. 
that you are to intentionally and to deliberately and to self-consciously, knowingly, with energy, with effort, enter into, and quite enjoyably too. I mean, those are the most enjoyable kinds of meals, aren't they? And to then take in bite by bite, bit by bit, word by word, phrase by phrase, thought by thought, image by image, as you dialogue with the biblical writers. That's how you chew on it. You go slow. You ask questions. You enter into it. You imagine what that felt like and what this is all about and why does he say this and why is this particular thing here and hey, wow, that's kind of interesting over there. You think about Scripture and and the patterns and whatnot that you know are in Scripture and so forth. That, by the way, is where reading through the Bible in a year is very helpful. For the record, I'm for reading the whole Bible, just in case you're wondering. And even reading it through in a year, as long as that's not your devotional life. And you don't confuse that with the way that it's to be read. Knowing the Bible, the stories, the characters, the patterns, the metaphors, the teachings of the Bible are very helpful as you come to the table and you begin to take it in bite by bite because you have all of these categories that the Spirit can then draw on and say, aha, did you see this and this? And what about this? And it comes to life. The Bible is a world that you enter into and that our whole world and your whole world fits into. It's not something you fit into your world. It envelops your world. It's fine dining. It's a slow meal. So we're going to know the Word and live the Word again in 2012, but we're not going to rush through the Word. But instead, we're going to taste the Word and chew upon the Word and savor the flavors of the Word. We're going to take it in and we're going to digest it slowly that it might feed our faith and nourish our souls and find expression in our lives as we come this year, better I hope than ever, to know Christ and to live to serve Him as our lives come into conformity with His own. So, with that said, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn to them to John chapter 1 as we continue today with this study of the entire Gospel of John that we started last week and that we're calling very simply the Word. And last week we found out who the Word is. The Word Himself is Jesus Christ. And last week, if you recall, we looked at the prologue to John's Gospel, the first 18 verses in which John introduces us to all kinds of topics that you're going to see as we move through the Gospel, the first of which is this guy, John the Baptist. Last week, John told us that there was a man sent from God to do what? To bear witness to the living Word who is Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. It's what he's going to do and what he'll show us this week as we pick it up again today is what that witness looked like and watch it carefully. So we're going to pick it up in verse 19, but here's the deal. I'm going to give you a little background information on John first, all right? This is what you find out as you read through the Bible in a year that you can then take and use as you read through the Bible slowly. John the Baptist was a truly great man, guys. And I think that he's often very easily overlooked. He's totally overshadowed by Christ. And by the way, as you'll see, he would have it no other way. But we miss how great of a man this guy really was. 
And please don't take my word for it. Listen instead to the words of Jesus Christ. God himself in the flesh, standing on planet earth with full knowledge of every life ever lived, at the end of John's life, here is the commentary of Christ. Matthew 11, verse 11, he says, truly I say to you, now don't miss this, among those born of women, there has arisen not a whole lot of people greater than John the Baptist. It's not what he says. There has arisen, get this, no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, if you're the press agent for Jesus and he says that, you're nervous, right? Seriously, like you want to go over and say, Lord, um, you know, turn off the microphones, you know. We need to issue a statement of retraction here. Are you serious? Just start running through people. Well, let's just start with Noah. We'll go with him. Is he greater than Noah? Most righteous man on the planet. Well, actually, the only righteous man on the planet in his day. God chooses Noah and his family restarts all of human civilization. That guy. I mean, I'm thinking he's got a little you know, a few things to put on his resume. Greater than him? What about Abraham? How much of the Bible is devoted to Abraham? He's all over the place. Huh. What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about Joseph? The most written about guy in the whole book of Genesis, Joseph. Amazing man. What about Moses? Now, just think about that one for a second. He writes the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. He delivers, God does, but through Moses, the people of Israel, in the single greatest, at least overtly stated, act of redemption in all of the Old Testament. He meets with God on Mount Sinai, comes down with the glowing face. I mean, you know, God parts the waters through Moses. God brings bread from heaven through Moses. God brings forth water from a rock from Moses. Is he bigger than Moses? Joshua. David, answer, apparently, yeah, let me read it again. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And Jesus doesn't ever have to issue a statement of retraction. He just gets it right every time. Wouldn't that be cool? would love that. John the Baptist was great and he had a great mission from which he no doubt derived a lot of this greatness to which Jesus here refers. John was given the singular privilege, the singular privilege of paving the way immediately before the ministry of Christ, preparing God's people for the ministry of God's Messiah. And then, and then when God's Messiah came out to John to be baptized, to then identifying him definitively as God's Messiah, the witness of God to God's own Messiah comes through John the Baptist. Nobody else can claim that. Stunning. So he had a great mission. He also developed a great following. I mean, being the forerunner of Jesus, he gets his ministry up and running before Jesus. And guys, what a ministry it was. I think we miss that a lot of times. We don't think about that. John was huge. Before everybody started following Jesus, before everybody started buzzing around Jesus, before everybody started, you know, writing checks for the ministry of Jesus, before everybody wanted to interview Jesus, before everybody was saying things like, I think Jesus has a whole series of messages on that that you should listen to. It was all about John. He was the man. He was the draw. Thousands of people were flocking out into the Judean wilderness to be baptized by, to hear the teachings of, and to come under some, the discipleship of, this man, John the Baptist. And if you've ever stood in the Judean wilderness, and I, I've been there, i got to tell you, you got to really be motivated to go out into it. It's not a destination location. It's not like, hey, we're going to be vacationing here in the middle of this nothingness and wasteland, and then we're going to see John. 
They're going out of their way big time to see this guy. He becomes so popular that the religious establishment in Jerusalem actually form, as we'll see today, a delegation. And they send this delegation out to John the Baptist to investigate him. And they come to him again, as we'll see in a second, with this question. And the question is, who are you? Now, I want you to think about that question because there's going to be some tasting and chewing and digesting going on here in a minute. But they're not asking him for his name and social security number and a photo ID and all that kind of stuff. They're saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting for? Or at least they're saying, is that who you're claiming to be? John the Baptist was a truly great man, guys. And he derived his greatness from his great mission, from his great anointing and gifts and and power and blessing of the Lord upon him. But he derived it also from the fact that no matter how great, and we'll put it in quotes, John became, he himself recognized that he was nothing. Indeed, less than nothing in comparison with the greatness of the one who succeeded him, and that's Jesus. So last week, John the Apostle told us that John the Baptist was sent from God to bear witness to the living Word of God who is Jesus, and today, he's going to give us a picture of that witness. Watch it carefully, beginning in verse 19. John the Apostle says this. He says, and this is the testimony of John, meaning of John the Baptist, when this religious establishment of the Jews in Jerusalem sent the special delegation that I just told you about of priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, John, this question, here we go, who are you? Are you the Christ? And notice what he says in verse 20. It's very, very emphatic He, John the Baptist, confessed and did not deny but confessed. Very emphatic. And what does he say? He says, I am, what's the next word? Say it out loud. Not. Not. That's his confession. I am not, he says, the Christ. And so they asked him, well, all right, what then? Are you Elijah? Because they knew that the God through the prophet Malachi had said, look, before I send the Messiah, I'm going to send... Elijah. So, is that who you are? And I mean, if you compare at least appearances of John to Elijah, a lot of similarities. Kind of an obvious sort of question, it seems. And what does he say? He said, I am, and here it comes again, not, well, then are you the prophet foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy who would come and speak the word of God, even as Moses spoke the word of God? John answered, no. So are you the Christ? I am not. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? I am not. I am not. I am not. I am not. It seems to me that if John knew anything about himself, he knew who he was not. Now taste that. Chew on that. You know, it's interesting to me that these statements, I am not, I am not, and we'll see another one here in a second, are recorded for us in John's gospel of all places, that gospel in which, as we saw throughout the Christmas season, Jesus Christ, Son of God, God made man in the flesh, standing on planet earth, as we saw, reaches back into the Old Testament and lays hold of the memorial name of God to all generations, including ours, which is the name I am And he takes it to himself. And then this Jesus, whom John last week in his prologue told us, is the light of life, right? In him is life. Takes that I am name to himself and attaches it to all these images dealing with life. I'm the bread of life. 
I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd who leads his sheep in the pathways of life. I'm the door who separates his sheep from destruction and death and secures for his sheep deliverance and life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the light of the world without which there is no life. I'm the true vine who brings forth and gives life to the branches, which, is the, which are the people of God. That's us, by the way. And then through us, he brings forth in the form of fruit, life. And so at least as I taste it, you know, and I chew on it and I kind of take it in, I think to myself, I wonder if there isn't some way or some sense in which, at least within the context of this gospel, John the Baptist here is being presented as saying, hey, listen, if the name of Jesus is I am, then let me give you my name. It is I am not. I am not. I think we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out who we are, no time at all, thinking about who we're not, and pondering the implications of that, and allowing those things to filter into our lives and get into our bloodstream, into our life stream, and find expression in our lives. And as a result, we behave a lot like we're God, and we're not. It's actually quite liberating and refreshing, I think, to recognize that. And I think it's high time that we do. We did not create ourselves. We do not own ourselves. We do not govern ourselves. We do not answer to ourselves. And this great big world in which we live, or even just the little world in which we work, live, and play, really and truly, does not revolve around us. I am, well, not. God. And I'll tell you what else is refreshing. It's refreshing to lay down this feeling that I have to be. Is that liberating to you at all? As in like you've got to figure it all out and and you've got to run it all and you have to somehow control it all and micromanage it all in the whole world. You're like Atlas holding up the globe, you know. The weight of the world is on you. No, it isn't. It's not. Jesus' name is I am. My name and yours? I'm not. So these guys come to John who gets that, and they say, are you the Christ? I'm not. Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? I sound like a broken record here. I'm just going to go with no this time. No. So, and then in verse 22, it says, so they said to him, well then, who are you? Because we need to give an answer to those who sent us. You know, we got to write up a report and make a presentation when we get back. So what do you say about yourself? And John said, all right, since you've asked, here it is. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, not muttering in the wilderness, not whispering in the wilderness, not even merely speaking in the wilderness. There's a passion to this voice. There is a drivenness to this voice. I am the one crying out in the wilderness, and it's a continuous action. I'm not the voice of one who cried out once in the wilderness, and now I hold my peace. Into the wilderness of Judea, into the wilderness of souls. John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Here's my message. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. And so then John not only knew who he was not, but he knew who he was. He was a voice, constantly, passionately, and continuously preparing people for and pointing people to Jesus. And when you're not gulping it down on the run and dropping your fries between your seat, but you're sitting there, 
digesting, taking it in little bit by little bit, savoring, you got to go, all right, well then who am I? Don't you have to ask that question? I mean, you're not reading for information, right? You're reading for formation. Are you interacting? That's how you chew. So then who am I? And I think we tend to answer that question in terms of maybe one of the hats that we wear or one of the roles that we play, you know? So like, okay, I'm a pastor or I'm an accountant. I'm in real estate. I'm in the lawn business. I'm a teacher. I'm a student. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a daughter. I'm a mom. John the Baptist is going, hey, well, um, that's what you do, and that's maybe some of the roles that you play, and maybe those are some of the titles that you really have the privilege of holding, and maybe those are some of the responsibilities that you have. But John's saying, who are you in your gut? He's saying, let me tell you who I am. No matter what hat I'm wearing, no matter what role I'm playing, there is a passion that drives my life, and here's what it is. I am a voice, and I do not mutter. I cry out into the wilderness of people's hearts and families and lives. Make way for the Lord. I'm here to prepare people for Jesus and to point people to Him. Verse 23, John said, I am the voice of one passionately and continuously crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then we read, now they, this religious delegation, had been sent from the Pharisees. And so they asked Him, well, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Here's the deal. It was not weird for people to get baptized in those days. But it was weird for somebody to baptize someone in those days. In other words, generally speaking, you baptized yourself. And so now somebody comes and he's saying, no, 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 I should baptize you. And they're going, well, on whose authority? I mean, on what basis? And here again, John's pointing them to Christ. John answers them immediately and he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you don't know, even he and this is amazing, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I am not worthy to untie. Culturally speaking, that is a huge statement of humility. Back in that culture in those days, the student-teacher relationship, and you can imagine that at some point with John and Jesus, Jesus is the greater, right? The student-teacher relationship was much like the master-slave relationship. In other words, the, the student was expected to perform all the duties of the slave except one. Guess what it is? Taking off his shoes. That was deemed to be too lowly for the slave, for the servant, for the student. John, this greatest of men, not by my opinion, but by the infallible opinion of Jesus, is saying, hey, you know what? This one who stands among you that you don't know, he is so great that I am not even worthy to perform that act. It's awesome. There is a real understanding of the priority of Jesus and of his greatness and prominence and preeminence in the life of this man that is hugely instructive. These things, John the Apostle now tells us, took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing, and now it's the next day. He says, and on the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and notwithstanding the fact that no doubt he's surrounded by a lot of his own followers, and this is not going to be good for his ministry... 
depending on how you define good and who you live to promote. It says, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's the eternal God. I myself did not know him. Isn't that interesting? Reminds me of other places in the Bible where, you know, somebody's looks has garnered leadership. Think of Saul in the Old Testament. How is he described as standing head and shoulders over everybody else? And when, you know, he was found hiding (laughs) and brought out as the leader, everybody was like, well, of course, you know, because he's tall, he's beautiful. You think of Eliab, was it not? David's oldest brother. Samuel goes to anoint the next king and Jesse starts bringing out his son. David's not even there. He didn't bring him in. He's out in the field. He comes walking in, the firstborn. Samuel says, surely this is the man. God says, no, it isn't, because I see what you can't. I look at his heart. That too is instructive. I mean, if you taste and chew, if you savor, there is nothing about the physical appearance of Jesus that is in any sense remarkable. There is nothing about him that would make him stand out. No way in a crowd would you have picked him out. No way. And Isaiah says the same thing. He is physically unremarkable. But he is nothing, he's certainly not unremarkable, is he? And John testifies to that. Behold the Lamb of God, he says, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's the eternal God. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. As you read through the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you get to that baptismal story, you see Jesus coming out to be baptized by John. And that's when John recognizes him. And he talks about that here. John the Apostle says, and John the Baptist bore witness. And here's what he saw at that baptism. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John then says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. My goodness, is he clear? And then we read, and the next day again. You see the chronology? Jesus was standing, or John rather, was standing with two of his disciples. And John looked at Jesus as he walked by. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And what do you think those two disciples did? I mean, they've probably heard about three sermons on Jesus at this point, this being number three. What would you do? I mean, I think I'd start attending the church of Jesus. And that's what they do. The two disciples heard him say this. And they then followed Christ when you skip ahead to chapter 3, the next page of your Bible. You see a mass exodus occurring in the ministry of John the Baptist. And I mean, it's alarming. Finally, some of his disciples from his finance team come to talk to him about this. And they're really concerned. Verse 26, chapter 3, it says, And they, these disciples, came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, it's sort of like, uh, hello, in case you haven't noticed, he, this Jesus who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, which probably it would be good for you to stop that, by the way, look, 
He's baptizing and, and all, not some, not most, are going to him. I mean, you can feel the tension, you know. There's a little resentment, I think, with these guys. They're going, hey, we kind of had our whole Presbyterian, of course, baptismal operation happening here first, and now Jesus builds his first Presbyterian Baptist church around the corner, and now everybody is leaving our church, and they're going to his church. And John, I mean, your ministry is imploding here, bud. What are you going to do about this? Your greatness is diminishing, or is it increasing? What would you say? How would you measure it? Because it makes all the difference in the world. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Your greatness is diminishing or increasing depending upon who you live to promote. So who does John live to promote? Well, let's look at his answer. And please chew on this one. He says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now, you might want to rush past that one. That's like one you want to take in a big bite because if you pause and think about that for a minute, you've got to let that speak to your time. You've got to let that speak to your talent. You've got to let that speak to your treasure. That's why we talk about putting it in the bag and giving it to the Lord. It came from Him. It belongs to Him. It's to be used at His discretion. A person cannot receive, he says, even one thing, not anything at all, unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not. There it is again, the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride, that's the image of the church, is the bridegroom. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. The friend of the bridegroom, John puts himself in the role of the best man, whose job was not to organize the bachelor party in those days, but to organize the whole wedding. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Do you see what brings him joy? Therefore, this joy of mine as my ministry is imploding is now complete. And then he closes with this. He says, he, Jesus, must increase. That's my passion. But I must decrease. John the Baptist was a truly great man, and his greatness was derived, yes, from his singularly great mission and from his uniquely awesome and great gifts and abilities. But his greatness was derived, I think, also from the fact that, you know what? He knew that when next to Jesus, he was nothing, and he lived that way. John knew who he was not. If he's I am, okay, then I'm real clear on something. I am not. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm certainly not the Lord Jesus. I'm not the Son of God. I'm not the bread of life. I'm not the way, the truth, and the I'm none of those things. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He knew who he was not, and he knew who he was. In his gut, he was a voice. Passionately and constantly and continuously preparing people for and pointing people to Jesus. And he was a man whose greatest joy was the increase of Christ, even though that increase really kind of came, at least to some degree, 
at his own expense. And by the way, for the record, that's the way it usually works. Yet that's his greatest joy. So that's who John was. That's what his testimony looked like. However, as you taste and chew and savor it, you know, I mean, as you take it in, as you sit and digest it, what are the questions? Who am I? Who are you? And what is our testimony? I mean, as you look at your life, what does it look like? Let's pray. Father, we do praise you today that there is one in whom are the words of life. Notwithstanding what circumstances we find ourselves in, there is one to whom we can turn, always. That it is on Him that the Spirit descends and remains. And in Him we see the face of our Savior, of our King, and of our God. Lord, there is one who is the great I am, and in comparison with Him, we are not. And I pray, God, that we would digest that and that that would begin to find expression in our lives. Lord, there is one who in the center and core of our being is worthy of the center and core of our being, of the devotion of our life, from whom all things come, everything, even the little things, even the hard things. And God, He alone is worthy of the promotion of our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we study Jesus, as we behold the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, who took upon Himself flesh and tabernacled among us through the words of this apostle, God, that we would recognize how great He is and how small we are in comparison, and that our great joy, irrespective of the cost, would be to promote Him. Do that in us this day, this week, Lord, in this year, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.